If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information. Astronomy Cast, episode 206 for Monday, November 8, 2010. Vision. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. Hi, Pamela. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Big, big news this week. This just in. Uh, we've got swag to sell. We have more than just swag. We have posters. We posters, have T-shirts. We lanyards, have lanyards, CDs. Um, please buy it. It's all in my spare bedroom. If you don't buy it, <laughs> I don't get my spare bedroom back. Right, right. Okay. So, so just specifically, uh, we talked about the T-shirts and the CD when we did Dragon Con, and we took them there and, and sold a bunch of stuff there. We've got season one. Of Astronomy Cast, which is episodes one through twenty-five on an MP3 CD with MP3, it's got the transcripts and all that. Uh, and then we've also got the Universe is Trying to Kill You T-shirt and our Cosmology T-shirt and our Scale of the Universe T-shirt. So there's, th- and then we've got a bunch of other knickknacks. There's the um, the comic book. The Universe is Trying to Kill You poster. The which, Universe is Trying to Kill You poster, which is beautiful. Yeah, it, It's my favorite. It's actually, you could frame it. I, mm-hmm. I love it. Wait, is, is that in your cheap. bedroom? Could, will you sign them? Yeah, I'm okay. totally, if, if you put, if you drop us an email and I'll see if I can figure out how to put a special request on the AstroGear site. Yeah, I'm willing to sign them. Sure. Okay, cool. So you go, you go to astrogear.org. So... And it's, and it's not on the Astronomy Cast site, and that's because this is actually going to be the place for gear related across all of our Astrosphere stuff. So Astronomy Cast and 365 Days of Astronomy and so on. So, so that's once again at astrogear.org, and uh, let's help clear out Pamela's uh, spare bedroom. Please. <laughs> All right. So last week we talked about fusion, where atoms come together to form heavier elements. And this week, everything comes apart as we talk about nuclear fission, how it occurs naturally in the universe, and how it has been harnessed by science to produce power and devastating weapons. All right, Pamela. So last week we talked about fusion, and this is the process where atoms are fused together under great pressure and heat to form heavier and heavier elements. And especially at the core of of large stars, we talked about how the elements, you know, fusion works and produces energy all the way up to iron. Yes. And then beyond that, fusion no longer generates energy, but something else does. So at a certain point... 
you go from giving off energy when you combine nuclei to giving off energy when you break nuclei apart. And this is something that occurs in nature all the time. Some of you out there may have radon detectors in your basement. And these detectors are basically looking for the radiation that's produced by naturally occurring nuclear de decays that are, are often associated with granite. So if you live near granite mines, or I guess quarry is the better word, if you live near granite quarries and you have granite bedrock underneath your house and you have a basement that can trap still air, it's, it's best to get a radon detector to look for these radioactive decays. And so what, what's the process that's going on here? Well, there, there's a couple of different things that can be happening. On one level, some nuclei just aren't entirely stable. And given enough time, they'll undergo what's either called a beta decay or an inverse beta decay, which is essentially the process where either a neutron decays into a proton, electron, and energy, or some other combination of those three things falling apart. So can you give me an example then? I mean... You know, let's. What's an example of an element that is commonly known to decay in this way? Well, so so let's look at at radon in particular. Radon will give off an alpha particle. This is a special helium atom that has two protons, two neutrons, and will become polonium, which is another radioactive element. And then it undergoes either beta decay or it more often gives off an alpha particle and becomes radioactive form of lead that's often referred to as radium. So there, there's all these complex channels by which different things can decay. And that what started off as radium will go through a whole series of decays before it becomes a nice stable form of lead via bismuth and polonium and mercury in some cases and all these different processes. Now, I think when we think about fission, we think about things splitting up, the actual atoms, they're not breaking up like in half. So you're not getting like, say, something with 100 protons turning into two, you know, two atoms with 50 protons. They're losing them a couple at a time, right? Right. That, yes. In general, you have very boring decay processes, <laughs> actually. <laughs> right. Yeah. And they're long, right? Because this loses one atom and the alpha particle and turns into that. And then that loses right. two particles and turns into this. Right. And it's this big, long chain. It, it tends to happen in leaps and jumps, I guess is the best way to put it. Because some of these processes happen rapid fire, where in one second you might have something go through multiple different steps, whereas other processes sit there for a few days and then decay. Or 100,000 years. <laughs> right, or 100,000 years and then decay. But... What's interesting is in many different cases, you can induce fission simply by nailing something over and over with neutrons. And, and this, this is, is the this is the power and the bomb side of it, right? Exactly. And this is actually what happens in stars in a lot of ways. There's, there's two different processes in stars that we talk about. There's the S process, which is the slow process, and the R process, which is the rapid process. And so when you and I talk about 
stars, we're usually talking about the nuclear reactions that go on in the core of the star. And this is, in fact, what we teach in Astro 101. In the core of the star, you have nuclear fusion going on and you build things up until you hit iron and then the world stops. Right. Iron being the the moment when you can no longer extract energy from fusion. Right. Now, those are the energy generating forms of nuclear interactions that are going on in stars. But you also have neutrons running loose in stars and occasionally hitting atoms and joining those atoms. And what we find is in many long-lived stars, you slowly get this buildup of, of neutrons where, for instance, you might have an atom of argon capture a neutron and jump up through a beta decay process to becoming cadmium. And that cadmium might sit there and slowly grow by capturing neutron after neutron after neutron, and then itself jump. And you can get all of these different elements that are growing slowly in the outer atmospheres of stars, one neutron and the occasional beta decay at a time. Huh, that's interesting because I thought that the heavier elements, you know, we always talk about how we're all made of supernova and, you know, you look at, you know, a piece of gold and that was formed catastrophically at the center of a supernova at the moment when it, you know, when it hit the, when it hit that iron limit and then it no longer had any energy to keep the outer atmosphere of the star pushed out and so it collapsed inward and all of these, that's when all the heavier elements form. But you're saying that... And that's that, the R process. That's the R. And that's the rapid process, right. That's the, right. But, but you're saying that there's a slow process where it's more like they just kind of grow over the millions of years into heavier and heavier elements. And, and this only works for some elements because you have to have things that don't immediately decay. Because a lot of elements, you throw a neutron at them, the neutron gets absorbed. It doesn't stay there very long. It rather rapidly decays into something else. You need atoms that are happy to sit there and gather one, two, five neutrons before they undergo some sort of a decay to become a different element. And it's through this slow gathering of neutrons in these semi-stable atoms that you can, for certain elements and only certain elements, end up with this fission process going on in the outer atmospheres of stars. Now, it's not a total lie when we're talking to the public because gold and silver and those pretty metals that we always point out, those do indeed come from and supernova explosions where you get this huge blast of rapid fire neutrons. So an atom doesn't have a chance to decay before it gets hit with five or 10 or more neutrons and thus is able to rapidly gather neutrons and then decay into a new atomic number. Right, but you've got the fusion of them coming together into these, these you know, the, the slow process. But then I guess there's fission happening as well as they're slowly decaying in the atmospheres. And I'm guessing scientists find that helpful. Yes, and it's actually, it, it explains a lot of the amounts of elemental abundances that we see looking around the, the universe. Uh, you can't account for everything with just supernovae. But the thing that unifies all of these different processes is the way the fusion typically works is you hit something with a neutron and this causes some sort of a decay. And so neutrons are some sometimes best looked at as the fuel source for the fission process. 
And this is what we see in nuclear reactors. Now, the only problem is that a lot of the reactions that we're looking at, you take, for instance, a uranium-235, you nail it with a neutron, it becomes a uranium-236. And that new uranium atom, that new atom that still has the same number of protons, still has the same number of electrons, it's now got one too many neutrons. And that difference causes it to catastrophically decay into a couple of different elements and now gives off three neutrons. Well, those three neutrons can now go off and hit three uranium-235s that are now going to produce nine neutrons and those nine neutrons are going to go out and hit uraniums and now you're going to have 27 neutrons and it becomes this runaway process. Some kind of chain reaction. Exactly. And you can't shut it off once you start it unless you find a way to absorb those neutrons out of the system and that's where control rods are so necessary in nuclear power plants they regulate the rate at which the neutrons can haphazardly fly around and cause all sorts of different fission reactions to occur and so in addition to the additional neutrons being released you're also getting a release of energy right right as long as we're above iron yes we're getting we're getting some energy out here Right. And it's and that it's that chain reaction, that cascade that can then be used to heat water and run a, a power plant or right. you know, in the case of a weapon. But so then in the case of a bomb, how is that working? What what happens is we rely on the fact that you can sort of enhance whether or not something is likely to decay by changing its environment. And what we do is we use regular everyday explosive to compress two pieces of uranium-235 into a high-density mass. And when this happens, they undergo rapid fire fission. And this produces more neutrons, which produces more fission. And it causes this runaway explosion. But to get that first generated set of neutrons given off you have to compress the mass now one of the things that we've we've found is you can actually get this sort of a nuclear reaction occurring in nature here on the planet earth Hmm. this is a bit scary to think about i mean can you imagine all of a sudden farmer's field becomes a runaway nuclear reaction (laughs) (laughs) so what's what's going on there because i know there has been evidence of 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 these past reactions found. Right. So the the key is you need a source of neutrons. Well, earlier in the show, I mentioned granite. If you have naturally occurring nuclear decays going on, and granite does this, near an area where there's significant uranium ore in the ground, and you compact this between different layers, say sandstone, those protecting, compressing layers can hold together the uranium ore. And if it gets compressed to a high enough density and hit with neutrons, and the reason the density matters is when you get one of those uraniums to decay, you want its neutrons to be able to hit the other uraniums. So you get the uranium ore such that the uranium atoms are close enough that the neutrons are hitting more uraniums once one goes off, you can trigger chain reactions. And there's an area in Gabon, Africa, 
where it was discovered back in 1972 that the ratios of the different isotopes of uranium, the different atoms that have different numbers of neutrons, didn't match with what's naturally occurring outside of nuclear reactors. And then they started looking at the other atoms in the soil, and they started realizing, wait, we're finding neodymium, we're finding ruthenium, and I'm butchering these pronunciations, but they were finding all of these daughter atoms in the ratios that you'd expect to get out of a nuclear reaction. And so there's some special situation where the the uranium got compressed, it was brought near a source of neutrons, and it acted like a nuclear power plant. And the estimate is that for, well, a few hundred thousand years, these naturally occurring pockets of uranium that got compressed and then got blasted with neutrons from granite, they were probably giving off about 100 kilowatts. That's a thousand light bulbs worth of power output at a time for a hundred thousand years. Hmm. I wonder if, if walking over top of it, you would have felt the heat. You know, that's a really good question. You probably yeah. would have. It just depends on how deep it was, and I'm not sure how deep yeah. it was. And then how dead you would be <laughs> from the radiation, right? Right, right. All of that is bad stuff. Right. And and so how, you know, that part is the part that, you know, I think we, we understand. I mean, there's, you know, with the nuclear bomb, there's the bomb, but then there's the radiation and the fallout. So what's going on there? So the the problem is you start off with something semi-stable like uranium-235 and then you start it on the whole nuclear decay stream. You get it so that it's going through and it's breaking apart into two atoms and those two atoms are only sort of stable. But it's the sort of that's the problem because it takes time for all of these daughter particles to break apart and become something completely stable that's not still periodically giving off a alpha particle, not still periodically giving off a gamma ray. And this is the big problem that is causing us to want to figure out how to get fusion to work because fusion does give off some radioactive particles, but the waste material, the fusion reactors decays in a few hundred years worst case now it's really radioactive while it's doing it but it decays quickly but the waste particles produced through uranium nuclear reactions and plutonium nuclear reactions these can last hundreds of thousands of years at not as immediately lethal but nonetheless lethal levels right so they're they take a long time to degrade but they're still putting out enough radiation that it's you can get a lethal dose from it right yeah now back to astronomy for a second how do astronomers use fission for their astronomy research i mean as we said you can see some of the the more slowly built up atoms in the atmospheres of stars how is that helpful well so we use fission in a couple of different ways the perhaps most interesting and least talked about way is cosmochronography, where you look at stars 
and you identify different isotopes from their spectral lines, from the absorption lines where they remove a fingerprint of light from the star's starlight. Right. And this is a process where you can tell essentially what a star is made out of by seeing what colors in the spectrum are being blocked or absorbed or, or brighter because of the, the elements that are in it. And we know how long different, different atoms last. We, we have figured out through a combination of quantum mechanics and observation how long each of these particles should hang out before it undergoes a nuclear decay 50% of the time. This is the radioactive half-lives. And we know what the child particles should be. And so we start trying to figure out, okay, so if this star started out this percentage of this radioactive isotope, and now we see this amount of the, the daughters, well, this star must be a given age. And so you can actually start to use the, the fission process and these naturally occurring nuclear decays to figure out how old are some of the more enigmatic stars hanging out out there. And this is just another way of getting at the age of our universe by putting limits on things by knowing this star must be at least this old to have undergone these nuclear decays. So just to give an example, right? So we, I might look at a star, measure how much, say, uranium 230, was it 238, 236 there is, and then also measure the amount of a different isotope of, of uranium. And then I know that the star is going to decay at a certain rate. And so I can see, I can measure the the, the ratios, and that should tell me how old the star is. And we use other elements. Thorium is another one that gets used. All of the we have whole lists of different atoms that have different decay patterns, have different uh, decay rates as well. And by looking at the radium, the thorium, all of these different elements, it allows us to bracket the ages of stars and thus put lower limits on the age of the universe. And, you know, oversimplifying, obviously, but but that's a pretty handy tool. You can look at any star, measure those ratios, and get a pretty good idea of, of how old that star is. And, and before the WMAP mission, before, before that, that was the only way that really astronomers had an idea of how old the universe might be, right? It, it was the only check we had. We were able to basically say, okay, we know how quickly fusion reactions are going to happen so we can stay stay a star we sh we can say a star will stay on the main sequence this long will stay on the horizontal branch this long it'll wander the red giant branch and the asymptotic giant branch for these different numbers of years but we had no check on our calculations and it was the cosmochronography that gave us that check on what we were doing so how else is fission used in astronomy it also helps us figure out supernovas. As we go out and we're trying to figure out fundamentally, well, how long did it take the universe to get to the point that planets could form? How many generations of stars needed to come and go and die and explode while dying before we had enough gold and silver and silicon and all these, well, silicon doesn't come from supernovas, but all these other elements that are necessary to build a planet. And so there are theorists who are working to build very detailed models of a supernova goes off, it has this blast energy, it gives off this number of neutrons, it has this sort of a dense environment from having 
use mass loss to give off its atmosphere. Neutrons hit that dense cloud of mass. What are the R process, the rapid neutron capture processes that are going to take place, that's going to produce this ratio of atoms. Okay, so one supernova produces this ratio. So now let's enrich the next supernova with those elements. And you can start to figure out if you see a given pattern of elements in a star, you know one supernova went into that star. If you Mm. see this other pattern of elements, you know, well, that's at least two or three different supernova went into that. And it starts to allow us to get a detailed picture of the generations of stellar deaths. And right now, we don't really have a lot of, we don't have powerful enough telescopes to see those first stars, those first galaxies, those first supernovae. But maybe with James Webb, We'll be able to tr- to chart that whole history from those first stars all the way up to the more the more complicated ones that we have today. And the biggest problem we run into in trying to understand the first stars is they died so quickly that we essentially need to figure out how to get a snapshot of a barely formed galaxy within the first million or two years that star formation existed in the entire universe. And that may not be something that we're ever quite able to do, but at least we have the computing power to figure out, well, if we see this, it means that happened. If we see this other thing, it means this other thing happened. It's like a Sudoku puzzle. You know, That's you, exactly what it is. Right. You kind of like, well, I've already got a one and a three and a five on this line. So it's got to be a, you know, a seven or a nine. So, so you can rule out. X number of generations that went into building up a star. You won't know exactly, but you can definitely get a sense of, of how old. And then you can chart back knowing how long those stars might have taken to to form and then detonate a supernova. It's 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 gotta be complicated work. It is. And it's the type of thing that we're so eager to get James Webb up there just to figure out, well, how right and how wrong were we? We know that the first stars formed and died amazingly fast because if the stars like our own sun had had time to form out of the original chemical mixture of the universe, then some of those original stars would still be hanging around because they die slowly. It takes time, but we don't see them anywhere. We only see stars that are enriched. Even... Red dwarfs, we don't see anything. You would think a little pocket of original hydrogen would have formed, but we haven't even seen those. And we know large stars form fast. And they just formed really, really fast and died really, really fast. Like how fast? Like 100,000 years? Like a thousand years? And that's the thing. We're not entirely sure. And it's, it's only through continuing to observe and continuing to look for what we call population three stars. The well, it turns out probably second generation of stars to ever form. It's only by searching for these stars that only show the the results of one generation of supernovae in their atmospheres that we can start to figure out, well, what must have happened and how fast must it have happened to allow these stars to have had the ability to get enriched before they formed. All right. Well, that sounds great. Well, thanks a lot, Pamela. And uh, that covers our fusion and fission uh, two-parter. And so remember, iron is the turning point. Iron is the turning point. That's the middle. It's the 
It's the stellar equivalent of ash. And don't forget to go to astrogear.org and uh, check out all of our t-shirts and CDs and lanyards and other great stuff. And let's get the stuff out of Pamela's spare bedroom. All in time for Christmas, (laughs) New Year's, whatever holiday you choose to celebrate. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Pamela. Thank you. (laughs) Bye-bye. This has been Astronomy Cast, a weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos. Show notes and transcripts for every episode are available on our website. Check it out at astronomycast.com. You can send us any comments, questions, or feedback to info at astronomycast.com. We read every email. The show is a nonprofit educational resource provided by Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. We're supported through the kind donations of listeners like you. If you enjoy Astronomy Cast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax deductible for U.S. taxpayers. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend it to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Music is provided by Travis Searle. The show was edited by Preston Gibson. Astronomy Cast is produced at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville with generous support from Universe Today. 